Yeah, it's funny. I I I did it twice. I always do my classes two times through as preparation by myself in a classroom at school at Northwest. So I did it twice, and I was like, I really don't feel comfortable yet. So I went and got Julia, and we were over at my parents' house, and so I asked my parents, "Can I do it one more time?" And my mom said, "Oh yes, of course, no problem." And I asked my dad, and he goes. <sighs> <laughs> He was watching football, so. <laughs> but he, he, he consented and, and was gracious enough to listen to it. And I did it in like exactly 47 minutes, so. Uh, <laughs> we'll see. I think I can cut a little bit shorter. Um, yes, so uh, I'll go ahead and pray, and then we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this day. Thank you for... First of all, I thank you for health for my family, and I thank you for bringing Jerry and Julia through this event and restoring them to full full health. And Father, I pray that um, you will bless us today and speak through me as I uh, seek to explain these things and, and talk about your word and, and the gospel and, and uh, defend it well. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Very good. So, <clears throat> if... Today's class has a title, um, sort of as your attention-getter um, mechanism as, as you learn in your five-paragraph essay format in like sixth grade, right? You want your attention-getter. Well, my attention-getter would be we're going to, the, the topic of the class is proving the gospel, if you have the outline still. So proving the gospel. So we're going to seek, or I'm going to try to prove the gospel by talking about the Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. Now, if Mike were here, he'd be like, to totally understand. Well, no, you don't need to. You just need, yeah, no, you'll be fine, Justin. Um, yeah, they pervade enough of our culture that I think we'll be able to make do. Um, and then there's some experts in the class. So, um, Right, so I'm going to seek to prove the gospel is true, essentially, um, by talking about those two fictional universes, if we will. So that's... That's where we will try to land um, toward, towards the end of the class. But just as a way of a refresher, obviously we missed a week. Um, so class three, which was, I guess, uh, three weeks ago. Class three, we talked about the transcendental argument. And in that class, we talked about how if we live in a world where we claim to know things or that there is truth, there must be a transcendent source of that truth outside of ourselves, right? Other ways we fall into um, sort of that just never-ending relativistic cycle of, well, truth is within myself, and then obviously all the problems that, that come from that. So we determined that the God of Scripture is the best candidate for the transcendent source of knowledge and truth. That is, knowledge and truth is contained within him, so we can say things are true, if our knowledge matches what he knows about things, right? So that was the third class. The fourth class um, was on, uh, we were looking at the Trinity. So I used the examples of the, the three different phrases. For example, the rolling stone gathers no moss. So we looked at how if the phrases don't have the f proper beginning and the end, they don't make any sense. And then we reasoned from that and we said, okay, if we live in a world where we have 
personalities and persons and relationships that have value, then we need a proper explanation for those things. And we realize that, okay, random chemical reactions doesn't beget personalities that have value, right? Uh, an impersonal force doesn't beget personal relationships. Those sort of notions. So we landed on the fact that there must be a personal relational God, which is essentially our definition of the Trinity, right? That he is personal, three persons, one substance, and they're in perfect uh, union and relationship with one another, right? So our relationships and our value flow from God, just like our knowledge, truth, value, and we could go down the line. We could have class after class of, um, you know, uh, ethics flow from God, uh, beauty, art, aesthetics flow from God, um, these sort of things. We could just go right down the list and, and use that same type of argument. Um, so that's where um, I'm hoping that that format, the method that we're using, the presuppositional method, is sinking in to where it's, okay, I don't have to just make that exact argument, but I can apply that method to XYZ topic. So, but again, that was just a little refresher for today. Like I said, we're seeking to prove the gospel or proving the gospel. So we're going to unpack that phrase a little bit, first of all, which is always a good thing to do. So John Frame, this is a Section, this is a um, chapter title in his book. So we're going to just uh, go through this. First of all, what do we mean by the gospel? Well, we all know the gospel to be, well, there's the four gospels, but the gospel in, the whole, in a sense is the whole entirety of Scripture, right? That is the message of Christ. So we believe that the Old Testament points to Christ, and the New Testament essentially lays out exactly what the Messiah is doing. So that's what we mean by the gospel. Now, the other important factor here is that by gospel, we don't merely mean the historical events. So we're not necessarily trying to prove that there was a guy named Jesus who lived in the first century and had 12 disciples. Right? We can prove that through archaeology, through history, different things like that. There's not very many historians who will deny that sort of fact. Right, so we're not trying to prove the historicity of it, or we're not necessarily just trying to prove that the Bible is a textually pure document, which it is. Right? Those are not necessarily the, the aim. They could be, if we get questioned on them. But what we're trying to prove is the gospel in the sense that it's actually true that Christ was the Messiah, that there's actually spiritual significance to the things he said, that it's actually binding on us. Right? There are New Testament scholars who are PhD-level scholars of the New Testament, but don't believe any of the spiritual significance is real. So that person couldn't prove the gospel to you. They could prove that Jesus said these things, or when the books were written, or these, this type of idea. But what we're trying to prove is essentially inspiration. That God himself is actually the author of Scripture. That it actually has spiritual significance, eternal consequences for us. That this world is actually true. Right? It's not just, oh, well, he's just another religious guy at that time and made some claims. Right? Which is sort of what we like to hear, what we hear today. 
from people is, oh, Jesus was just a good moral teacher. Well, what they're saying is that the gospel is true in the sense that it happened, that there was a guy and he lived and he taught these things, but they don't actually have any spiritual significance. So our goal is to prove that it actually does have spiritual significance. And that's a much, that's a much more difficult task. Right? So that's what we mean by gospel. The entirety of scripture actually means something. It's actually true, right? Um, the claims it makes are actually true. Proof or proving, what do we mean by that? Well, I think um, for the most part, we could say that something is proved when it ought to be believed. Would that be a good definition? So, yeah, I was, was going to ask about that. Because when you say prove, you could say, well, is that, are we looking for like hard mathematical type proof that's like super clear with the Correct. So it's, are we looking at the evidence to prove it? So it's sort of that, that as we looked at in class two, the evidential model, is it proved beyond any reasonable doubt? Um, is it proved logically necessary? These sort of things. We can prove that gravity exists even though we can't see it, you know, just because right. we don't see the evidence of the guy laying on the sidewalk, right? Flat out. So for our, we're not, we don't want to get too obviously tied up into all the nuances of what proving is, but... For the most part, if we say something has been proved, I think most of us would say, it, you ought to believe it. Right. Right. Sufficient, Someone, sufficient evidence. Sufficient evidence. We, like, yeah, we ought to believe in gravity. Right. <laughs> right? We ought to do that. If the, the person who says, I'm going to refuse to believe it hasn't been, you know, science is just observation of a fact that's already happened in the past. It doesn't guarantee anything in the future, so I'm going to jump off this bridge. Right? <laughs> That person, we'd say, no, you ought to believe the proof. Yes. Okay. So that's our definition that we're sort of working with, is that the evidence or logic or however we get there, right, it ought to be believed. I think that's a fair um, articulation of it. Um, <clears throat> now, the interesting thing is that when it comes to Proving the gospel. So if we think about what we're really saying here, is that this is the word of God, that it actually came from God, and it's therefore authoritative and inspired, right? We're trying to show that people ought to believe that about Scripture. Essentially, that's what we're doing. People ought to believe that the gospel has spiritual significance and eternal consequences for them. And on them, it actually tells them the truth of reality. And we saw that, I think, in our, um, you know, it was in third class where we talked about the supremacy of Scripture, right? How uh, there's natural revelation and special revelation, and what we believe the gospel is is special revelation from God that corrects and clarifies our understanding of everything else. So that's really what we're trying to prove here: that it is indeed special revelation from God; that it's the pinnacle of knowledge; it's the supreme source of truth in the world, because it comes from God, because it's actually inspired by God. So that's the task. Now the interesting thing is that the biblical precedent for coming to belief in Christianity, what is it? So how do we actually come to faith? The Bible tells us how we come to faith. Hearing the Word of God. So we unpacked it, I can't remember which class it was, but we unpacked a little bit that the proper response to hearing the gospel, just hearing the gospel, is faith. That's the proper response. Right? Romans 10, 17, Paul says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. 
And then we have it actually at the very sort of beginning of the church. In Acts chapter 2, Peter gives his Pentecost sermon after the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Right? He gives his Pentecost sermon, which is essentially the gospel in a nutshell, right? And what's the crowd's response? Well, the crowd's response is not, you didn't prove it to me. I demand, I demand more proof, right? They heard it and they responded correctly. This is where they gave the, the Bible gives the sort of precedent of a proper response. They said, so Acts 2, 37 through 38. Now when they, that's the crowd, heard this, they were cut to their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Luke records that over 3,000 people were baptized that day. So that's what we have is the proper response to the gospel. And I think for the most part, that's our response, that's our testimony in the room here, is that we heard the gospel and we didn't go... That sounds good, but I don't believe it right away. You need to prove. I don't believe that. At, you know, the, you need to prove to me that Jesus was a historical figure first, or I don't know if the Bible is textually reliable. Right? These are questions. I think they're fair questions, but that is not what the Bible says is the proper response to hearing the goodness of Christ. So the proper response is responding by faith, and that, as we'll see is only possible if the Holy Spirit is actually drawing you. Right? So that's the important mechanism there, is that the person who responds properly is the person that God is willing, that God has drawn to him. The person who has not been drawn, the person who has not had the Holy Spirit call them, will demand proof, or will deny it and say, nah, that's, he's just another religious figure at that time. There were lots of people saying they were the Messiah in the first century, which there were, right? They'll point to those things. They'll demand proof. So what's interesting is that our job as apologists is sort of a retroactive proof. We came to faith as Christians. We are committed to it. And then we realize, oh, wait, there's all these people out there who aren't committed to it who are demanding proof from us. Well, in a sense, we didn't demand the proof ourselves, right? But to be good stewards and, and faithful sort of witnesses to Christ, we go, okay, we seek to prove it to the person so that they ought to believe it. The unbeliever ought to believe it. And this is where that idea of, of mankind, natural man, knowing the truth and yet suppressing it. He's aware of God's existence, yet through his sin, he denies it. Right? So he ought to believe. In fact, he was created to believe in God, yet his sin does not allow him to do so. Okay, So that's where we're getting at. Natural man demands the proof. And so we're trying to give him an argument that he ought to believe, but in a sense we know he's not going to. <laughs> this is the difficult part. How do we prove the gospel? So we're going to prove it to people who can't be convinced? And we're I think... Also, we're also going to keep in mind that they're dead. Correct. So how do you prove to a dead man? Right, right, yeah. Right? Yeah, how are these bones going to get up and walk around? Right. Um, and if, if that wasn't true, then obviously we could prove it to him, in which we wouldn't really need the Holy Spirit to draw us. We just need a good argument, right? So this is this is where we're going to um, sort of land today. Um, so as I said, 
We're proving the gospel, we're trying to prove the gospel to the person who has already not responded properly. Okay, so we're going to see if that's even possible at all. Now, <clears throat> we're going to get a little, uh, little deeper here into sort of philosophy, and I'm sorry that this happens every now and then, I just can't help myself. <laughs> <clears throat> just like, let's do it! Then I hear that voice in my head, no, don't. Nobody cares except for you. All right, so in order to prove something to be the case, since we're talking about that, the interesting thing is it must be something that's provable. Okay, so in order to prove something is actually true, is actually the case, exists, is, right, those sort of things, it must be provable. What that means is in our case, <clears throat> in order for Scripture to be inspired, right? so in order for Scripture to be inspired, there must in fact be something to inspire it. An inspirer. An inspirer, right? So you need, essentially, God to inspire it. Okay? So... If the Bible is true, if, we're, if we can prove that it is in fact inspired, the inspired Word of God, this must be the case, or it at least must be possible. It must be possible that this is true. If this is not possible, then we can't actually prove it's inspired, because there's nothing to do the inspiring. As we will see, this is the dilemma with arguing with atheists, why they would just wholesale reject scripture is because in their worldview, there's nothing to do the inspiring. So there's nothing for us to prove anything about, which is why you can't necessarily have a discussion with them, right? But that's, in, in sort of logical terms, this is what we're dealing with. In order to prove something, we, in order to prove the inspiration of scripture, or rather, in order to prove that God exists, it must at least be possible that he does exist. So this is the thing that we need to ask people right off the bat. If they say, prove to me that God exists, we need to ask them, is that possible for me to do? And if they say, oh, no, it's not. They say, well, then I can't. Because there's, there's no evidence, there's no argument that would, that would convince you. So we need to get the person to the fact that, okay, what we're trying to prove demands that it's either it is or that it's at least possible. Okay, so, like if I tried to prove that I existed, we say, my existence can only be proved if I do in fact exist, or it's possible that I exist. I, want, I don't want to go down a rabbit trail, but Christ talked about that when he was with his disciples, training them when they'd go into a village, and he would heal many, but then there was certain times where none would come and be healed. And they asked him, well, what's what gives, you know, because there's all kinds of people that need healing, and he says, there's no faith there, there's no... It's your lack of faith, you know. And he always told the people that were healed, or were, it's your faith that has healed you. Mm -hmm. Your faith in me, simply because you believe, you've been healed. And it's not some kind of smoke and mirror show he was trying to figure out. And so, pointing again to the, the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. something inspired this. And, yep. you know. Yep. Yeah, there's clearly, it's clearly, uh, the Bible gives a very clear, I think, explanation that it, God is the one who's doing these things. 
God is calling his people. Right? It's not we're, oh, hey, look, look what we found. Look what we stumbled upon. Right, no. Um, <clears throat> so, in order to prove something is actually the case, we must acknowledge that it's at least possible. Okay, so it at least has to be possible in the person that's demanding the proof. They have to concede that it's at least possible for that thing to be true in order to do any sort of proving, to give any sort of evidence. Right? If they say it's not possible that God exists, then, there's, then it's not possible that Scripture is inspired. If it's not possible at all that there's an inspirer or a, a God who reveals himself through written documents, then it's not possible that Scripture is actually true. So that's an important fact here. Now, what's interesting, if we go from this, we're sort of, we are tumbling down the rabbit hole, as we say. <clears throat> what this means is we can create a logical dilemma of, and this is essentially what presuppositional apologetics does, and this is what John Frame in his book does, and, and several other um, apologists have done, is they've said, based on this sort of argument, and as we'll see from Scripture, we come to the conclusion that either God exists, or He does not exist. So we'll just say, no God. Okay. Now, just a real quick logical rundown. These are logical contradictions of each other. Right? That is to affirm God is to necessarily deny this. No God. To affirm that there is no God at all is to necessarily deny this. What's interesting about these and about logical contradictions is they can't both be true. One of them must be wrong and the other one must be right. Now, some would say, well, they can actually both be wrong. They both can't be right. But they could both be wrong. But I want us to think a moment. Could we imagine a world, if these are direct opposites of one another, could we imagine a world where both of these are wrong? God exists is incorrect, and God doesn't exist is also incorrect. There'd have to be a third option, though. Right. There is none. But there is no third option. Oh, okay. So this is what we call mutually exclusive. One of them must be the case. That's good for you to believe, but I don't believe it. So it's like, okay. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, there's right. no third option here. Yep. So for our purposes today, what we're saying, obviously, because we're presuppositionals, uh, we're saying what we mean by God is the God of Scripture, right? So what we've got, um, well, I'm just going to put Trinity, so that, right? Or no God. Because the first one there, God, when you say God... What are we talking about, yeah. Exactly, so we can say that's true, both are true, because everybody has a God. Right, yeah. right. So yeah, that's why we don't want to just leave it here, because this is a very abstract term, and it's like, what do you mean by that? Um, like the first question of apologetics, what do you mean by that? Um, right, so... What the, our job as apologists is to say the notion of an absolute God is actually contained within the Trinity. So this is where we're going to look at a few uh, passages here in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay? Um, 
Okay, so it says Isaiah, Isaiah 45, 5-7. And now obviously this has its own context and everything, so I'm not just reading this out of nowhere. We have a context there. But still the statements sort of stand on their own. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So there's God, Yahweh, the Trinity, claiming to be the only option, which is essentially what we've done here. Like, okay, we've done, we've created the syllogism, that's the argument, We've created the argument that either God exists or he doesn't. And one of those must be the case. We can't imagine a world where both of them are wrong because they're logical opposites. They're direct contradictions of one another. So either God exists or he doesn't. There we have God himself in Scripture in the Old Testament saying, I'm the only option. So either I exist or nothing else exists. So God exists or he doesn't. New Testament, we have Jesus before the, the leaders in the temple in John eight fifty six through 58 Jesus says to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So there's Jesus using the very name of God in the, New, in the Old Testament claiming to be that very God, the one and only God, and there is no other. So this is, and there's, there's dozens and dozens of other passages that we could use. I just sort of cherry-picked two um, for our purposes today. Right. These are, they pervade the New Testament and the Old Testament, right? So you get this idea very, we understand, if you read Scripture, you get the idea very clearly that God and Christ are saying, we're the only option. All these other gods that other people might pray to and bow to, they're actually, they don't actually exist. We're the only option. They're simply denying us. right? These sort of things. So this is what we have. Scripture teaches us this sort of argument. That either God exists or he doesn't. Okay. So really what we're talking about here, for our purposes, <clears throat> and if we take that back to what we're trying to prove... Right? If we're trying to prove the gospel, then this must be the case. If we're trying to prove that the Bible is inspired, this necessarily must be the case. Okay, what do you do with people though, who say, well, you've just used Scripture to prove Scripture? Very good. We're going to get to that. Okay, thank you. So, well, actually, we'll do that right now. People who say, oh, well, you're committing circular reasoning by using Scripture to prove Scripture, we would say, as Van Til once said, uh, you have to do that. And as we're going to show, you actually have to assume the rules of your system in order to prove your system. So we're going to sort of prove that in a moment. You must assume or presuppose the reliability of logic to use logic. You must presuppose the reliability of your senses in order to use the scientific method. So in a sense, everyone is actually, and this is actually a very, uh, this is a problem in philosophy, is philosophers have, within the last couple hundred years, they have realized that they cannot escape circular reasoning. Which, as Christians, we would say, we have no other choice but to reason in a circle about an absolute, infinite God. 
And ultimately, I think we're actually the ones who don't commit circular reasoning, but we would have to do a whole other class on that. Um, I'll, I'll defer to John Frame's book. We'll put you, point you to the right chapter. Um, but we're, we're going uh, to get into that a little bit, Becky. Okay. So we'll, else, you have to understand what it is that's being proved in order to... You can't be like, oh, I get it. I, I, I understand. I, okay, you proved it to me, but I don't really understand what you proved to me. Right. Sense, right, right, right. In order to even seek using proofs, you must presuppose that language is a thing that makes sense. Um, okay, so... Yeah. All right, so yeah, so what we have going on here is a, is a clash of worldviews. Either we start with the presupposition that God exists, that is the triune God of Scripture, or He doesn't. And as we've seen, those are the only two possibilities, and this is what presuppositional apologetics seeks to do, and John Frame in his book actually sort of concludes this in one of his chapters, that there are only two positions. There's only the Christian worldview or the atheist worldview. Those are the only two possible worldviews to hold to because of the nature of how the God of Scripture, the Christian God, that is Christ, Describes himself and defines himself. Those are the only two ones to hold to consistently? Yes. Those are the only two options that we can choose from. Either we live as though, like we said two weeks ago, we either live as though there's relationships that have value which come from a relational God, or we have to admit that no, they don't have any value because there's nothing to come from. Okay? So you the point. said that there's many different worldviews, but they're really. I, I had I had this argument with a few guys before that were atheists, and I said, "Well, there's there's thousands of worldviews out there." And I go, "No, there's really not. There's two. Yeah. <laughs> there's and, a Christian so, worldview, and there's so the non-Christian. So we're saying that hey, really, okay, so you're like a Hindu or you know a Confucianist or someone or a Buddhist. Really, they're it's just a different form. Form of it's just a different form of atheism. Buddhism, for example, is inherently atheist. Right, right. right? There is actually nothing actually exists. The goal is to escape this life. Right. So that's what we've realized. That either so we've sort of we're, we're spiraling down here. Right. God exists or he doesn't. The triune God of Scripture exists or he doesn't. So there's the Christian worldview or there's the atheist worldview. Right. In sort of the broad terms. Now, to show what's going on here and the difficulty of proof, I'm going to use an analogy, and this is where we're going to talk about Middle Earth and Star Wars. Okay? And this was sort of an epiphany to me uh, during the last week, that philosophy and fictional writing are pretty much the exact same thing. So philosophy, the exercise of philosophy, and fictional writing are pretty much the same exercise. In philosophy... You seek to describe reality and the way things work. In fictional writing, you create a reality and describe how it works. I think that's pretty much the same thing. So, what we're going to talk about is Middle Earth and the Star Wars universe. Now, these are separate universes, correct? They don't have anything to do with one another. What are some things that occur in Middle Earth? Does anybody know anything about Tolkien's world? Come on. Good reformed people, we should know this. Oh, yeah. So there's men, 
Elves, wizards, right? These sort of things. The elves live forever. Yeah, we're just going to throw stuff out here. Just shout it out. So yeah, the elves can die. There's men, okay? Um, there's there's magic in the world, right? Hobbits, very good. There's powerful rings. So there's magic, right? There's spiritual powers. There's bad people and good people. Inherently bad people and good people. The interesting thing is that Middle Earth, the way Tolkien wrote it, is it actually... Okay, we'll just say this. If you want to know what, the new, what Genesis 1 is about, read the Cimmerillion. That's Tolkien's sort of prehistory of Middle Earth. If you want to know what Genesis 1 is about, read the Cimmerillion. And Mike is slapping himself in the forehead right now. He's like, I can't believe Jared just said that. <laughs> so, Tolkien used a biblical framework for his writing. That means is there's actually a God who creates everything. And he's the one who enables the elves and the wizards and all the magical beings to use their powers. So there's actually a creator God who's empowering these people to do the things they do. He created man. He's establishing Aragorn on the throne of Gondor, right? I'm nerding out completely right now. <laughs> these sort of notions, but it comes from God. And I won't bore you with the name of the God because you don't probably care. Um, Right? So, that's Middle-earth. What do we have in Star Wars? Well, we have different races, aliens. Come on, who are the good guys in Star Wars? Jedi. Jedi, Jedi right? Who are the bad guys? The Sith. Okay. Where do they derive their power from? The Force. Oh. And what is the Force? It's balance between good and evil. Light and dark. Light and dark. It's... It's, it's Buddhism, essentially. So it's yeah. impersonal. An impersonal force. And... Only the dark side believes in absolutes. Yeah, well, touche. It's just interesting when you get close to the dark side, it sucks you in like a tractor beam. Yeah. <laughs> Good one, Byron. <clears throat> so, what we have here is that the Jedi and the Sith and all the magical... Or not magical. All the force-sensitive beings in the Star Wars universe derive their power from this. And it's an impersonal force that is always in balance. Right? So that's why they talk, oh, and it's not in balance. There's big problems. Right? <clears throat> so the force is the driving force, if you will, behind these people's abilities. Right? This is its own universe. Over here we have Iluvatar. That's the name of the god in Tolkien's world. Giving the elves and the wizards and men... And the dwarves and stuff, their magical abilities, actually sort of driving their destiny. Right? So if we take these to sort of stand for our two different worldviews, well, they're completely different systems. This is what you have in philosophy, and this is what I talked about, that that frustration of people arguing past each other. Well, they're just creating totally different fictional worlds. They're ex now now they use human experience as the standard. But they're creating totally different systems with totally different explanations and totally different conclusions. So the argument then is, how could I use the force to explain how Gandalf does what he does? Can we do that? Could I use anything in the Star Wars universe to explain anything in Middle Earth? You have to change it. No, because they're, they're separate systems. Yeah. Likewise... 
is there a is the God who created Middle Earth informing the destiny of the Jedi and the Sith? They know they're totally different systems, right? So this is what we have going on here. We have a system which we can prove the gospel is true because God actually exists, so we have something to prove. In this world, you can't, in the atheistic world, you cannot prove scripture's true. You can't prove it's inspired because there's nothing to do the inspiring. They've presupposed the worldview, they've presupposed this world. The rules of this world cannot interfere over here. So that's why the conclusion of our day is that we cannot prove to the person that God exists who denies patently that God exists because there's nothing to prove. Now here's the thing. This is, the, this is our strength as presuppositionalists, as Christians. What we realize, and this is what Scripture teaches us, is that we all do in fact live in Middle Earth. Everyone does in fact live in Middle Earth. The atheist is the man who's running around in Middle Earth claiming to be a Jedi. He's living, right? Sort of a crass analogy, right? He's, he lives as though, like we said in our last class, he lives as though there's meaning to his life. But he claims there isn't. He lives as though there's order in the world. But he claims that order came from nothing. He lives as though his person and the relationships that he has are meaningful and have value. Yet he claims that those things don't have any source at all. What if we're really all just in the matrix? <laughs> what if we're all in the matrix? Well, we wouldn't know, would we? <clears throat> Hello, Neo. Yeah. So, so we, we could ask the atheist who says, prove to me using science that scripture is inspired, that it's actually eternally, has eternal consequence. Can we use the modern scientific method to prove? No, why? It's not repeatable. Because it's, no, it's inherently atheistic. The modern scientific method is inherently atheistic. There's nothing to prove. So this is where when we dialogue with people and they demand proof from us, we need to ask them, is it provable? Essentially, we need to ask them, what world are you living in here? Are you, are you, are you presupposing that God doesn't exist. Well, if God doesn't exist in your worldview, then I can't prove to you that He does. Any more than I can prove to you that Aragorn is the king in the Star Wars universe. They're totally separate worldviews. That's what we have going on here with... And this is, I think, what we have in Scripture with natural man and the new creation in Christ. That when we are redeemed... And sanctified by Christ, we're given a new mind, and we see things clearly. We use Scripture as the guiding force, as the lens to see the world. We understand the world as it actually is. Natural man is over here denying God, right? He suppresses the truth. He's denying that there is a reason for his existence, these sort of things. He's claiming he lives in this universe, but he actually holds to these rules. Cameron, were you going to say something? <gasps> Good catch. Yeah, it just seems like that's really important to know because uh, 
lot of times, like as Christians, I don't think we're aware of these these foundational assumptions that we have, and we don't we don't realize that other people, like non-believers in the world, have these foundational assumptions too. We just kind of assume that everybody's just kind of indifferent on this neutral playing ground, and it seems like a complete waste of time. Like what I think a lot of Christians do is we have the middle. We're coming from the Middle Earth perspective, but then when you start arguing with an atheist or unbeliever, we we abandon our Middle Earth and we go over into uh-huh. their Star Wars world and we start trying to argue with them from that perspective, hmm. rather than be clever enough to pull them over into our worldview and show them that they need to argue from that perspective. Correct. Yes. So that's that's precisely what our goal as Christians to do is as Christians is to do is to not. Our goal is not to prove the Christian worldview in every possible alternate explanation, alternate universe that someone can come, come up with. They can come up with any, anything, this flying spaghetti monster. Well, in that worldview, there's nothing to inspire the Bible. So how would we prove the inspiration of Scripture to them? Well, what we need to do, like Cameron just said, we need to be clever enough to draw them back to their senses, and say, wait a minute, you're, you're claiming you live here, but you act as though you live in this world. You're claiming that Star Wars is the world you live in, but you live and breathe and act like there's meaning to your life. These are the, these are the tools and the strengths of the Christian apologist. And maybe you're going to probably get to this, but I think the point being, like, if, if the, they and we actually live in Middle Earth, then you can actually point to the objective evidence of right. things that precisely in Middle Earth and see this you know so if we actually yeah that's the thing is that if we do live in Middle Earth and if everybody does live in this world then we can prove it then we can use so if God if the God of Scripture is possible it's possible that he exists then we can use archaeology we can use textual criticism we can use these things to point to Hey, if a text was inspired, if a text was actually given by God, what are some of the attributes it would have? In an atheistic worldview, there's no evidence that could possibly get you there. Well, it, yeah, it, uh, even the things like uh, intangibles, love, right, truth. You know, what is truth? Right, was a famous question. Right, what is truth? You can't. These are something that intangibles. You can't, you know, mm-hmm. explain them, right? Right. Yeah. Weird. So, um, what I think the strength that we have is, and we'll end with this, what we realize in Scripture is that without the drawing of the Holy Spirit, without God drawing man unto Himself, we cannot simply reason our way to it. And this is precisely what Cameron was getting at, is that there's not a neutral platform that we all start on and we can just reason to God. Scripture tells us that, no, we are, we are dead in our sins. We are darkened in our understanding apart from God. Apart from God, we have no choice but to live like atheists. It's our only predisposition. It's our only presupposition that we can choose. We're, just, we're God deniers. right? We are enemies of God. Well, because you are. Right. Correct. Scripture teaches us that. It takes the Holy Spirit to come in and renew our minds to give us clarity, to give us correct understanding of the world. Otherwise, we wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. There would be a neutral platform that we could just reason to. We could, we could prove Scripture's inspiration to any and all possible 
philosophies. But as we've seen today, we can't do that. Because of the state of fallen man, because of man's depraved position. So it takes, so essentially, apart from Christ and the Holy Spirit revealing the truth, we cannot hope to find that truth. We cannot hope to prove anything. Okay? Now, we'll conclude with this passage. Ephesians 4, 17-24 Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy practice of every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned, or that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and you were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Amen. Amen. So, as Christians, we have been enlightened, we have been renewed through the power of Christ to see things clearly. We cannot assume that the world, natural man, is in the same position. So we're, we're dealing with a different... The way we argue with them is different because we're assuming two separate worldviews here. We're starting in two drastically different places. And once we understand that, then we will be able to argue with them properly. What you can do, too, is, when you, is if they're in that Star Wars universe, you can, because most likely they'll be living in a consistent worldview, because they'll, if you take, you know, impersonal force, take it to its logical conclusion, it'll say there's no meaning in life, there's, you know, nothing matters, but they live, they probably live as, as if there's... Precisely. You have yes. to show them that inconsistency and, and make, you know, it'll... Yep. Have you ever read and a shape or anything? A little bit, yeah. Yeah, he says it'll be painful for them right. because they get to a point where, like, and the last the last couple classes, we'll just this is, the class is over. But the last couple classes, um, we're going to talk about just like method and actually doing this in practice. So we're going to talk about what you just hinted on, which is um, reductio, what they call reductio, which is reducing something to its absurd conclusion, right? right? So we we adopt their worldview for the sake of argument and show it that it leads nowhere. These sort of things. We're going to talk about all those things, and we're going to actually use sort of concrete examples of arguments and things. So some of your class, Jedi's live in Middle-earth? Yes, yes. Jedi's live in Middle-earth. Very good. So it's very, this, we're getting, that's deep stuff. So we're, we're down in the trenches of philosophy here.